This week on Geek Explained, Christmas time is here. To celebrate the holiday, we're taking a deep dive into something near and dear to my heart. So join me as I Geek Explain a Charlie Brown Christmas. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and it's Christmas! Uh, this week, as of this recording, uh, Christmas is on Friday, so this is our, uh, I guess this is technically our Geek Explained Christmas special for the year of 2020. We're almost there, folks. We're almost to 2021. The light at the end of the tunnel doesn't look like a train just yet, so I am holding out hope that next year is going to be better. Um, but... Yeah, so Christmas is this week. I'm just really excited to be almost done with this year and really excited to watch some of my favorite Christmas traditions. Stuff like Justice League's uh, Comfort and Joy and, of course, A Charlie Brown Christmas. But because it's been uh, near and dear to my heart for so many years, I figured it would be a good time to talk about that Charlie Brown Christmas special because you may know the story, you may know the characters, you may know the songs, but I think a lot of people don't really know how this special came to be and just how important it was for the... uh, for the Peanuts as a brand and as this uh, media sensation that it ended up becoming. So this week's main event is talking all about the Charlie Brown Christmas special, how it came to be, everything that went into it, and the crazy story of how uh, everything came together to make one of the greatest Christmas specials of all time. We also have the the final weekly review of the year with the conclusion of Season 2 of The Mandalorian, and of course course, this week's Comics Countdown. No news this week. I'm taking a couple weeks off of the news segment to just kind of enjoy um, the Christmas uh, holiday. We will be doing a uh, an episode for both this week and next week of Geeksplained, so don't worry about that. You'll still be getting your Geeksplained fix all the way through into the new year, but we are going to just roll right on into the main event, the entree, if you will, as I Geeksplain a Charlie Brown Christmas. So I was probably four or five years old when I was first introduced to the Peanuts gang. Uh, Charlie Brown was a character that I kind of identified with. He was a bit quieter, a bit more of a uh, reserved character who just seemed to have the worst luck. Uh, My mom, I remember, introduced me to the character in the... uh, 
the VHS tape, remember how old you are <laughs> when you're uh, talking about VHS tapes, uh, with the VHS tape of Snoopy's Family Reunion. I remember that was the very first thing that introduced me to Charlie Brown and the gang. And I remember just being in love with that whole world. The characters, the adults all speaking, wah, 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 like that. And I just remember really uh, being engrossed in that world and in those uh, those kids, those oddball kids. And around uh, Christmas, after I was first introduced to the character, um, my mom and my dad basically showed me this video. They basically said, you know, you, we know you like Charlie Brown. Uh, did you know there's a Christmas episode? And I had never seen it before. I didn't know what to think. And they plopped me in front of the TV and they put in this VHS tape that was a Charlie Brown Christmas. I remember watching this and even though at the time, because I think the uh, the Snoopy's Family Reunion came long after that. I think it was a different cast and everything. But um, getting to learn about these characters, their, uh, their relationship with Christmas, their relationship with each other, really uh, spoke to me as someone who has always had kind of a weird relationship with the holidays. And uh, the special itself really became a yearly tradition. I've watched it pretty much every single year since. And the music, I remember very distinctly, shaped my early love of jazz. I remember just loving everything about that that soundtrack, just from the sadness that was behind a lot of the scenes that just featured uh, Charlie Brown to more some of the more upbeat stuff. Charlie Brown shaped a lot of my love for music and my love for characters uh, as a kid. And when I talk about uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, there is a lot of stuff that goes into that. I always loved the sh- the uh, the special. It's been something that I really look forward to uh, revisiting every single year around this time. But this year, I wanted to kind of take a closer look at the special, kind of look at how it came to be, because it's a pretty interesting story when you kind of get down to the nitty gritty of it. And before we get into the special itself, I think it would be good for people who might be unfamiliar with Charlie Brown to just go kind of through a basic... um, a basic, a brief history, if you will, of the character and the um, and the whole property of the Peanuts. Now, the Peanuts gang were created by uh, Charles M. Schultz as part of a uh, comic strip in the newspaper uh, way back when. <laughs> they were uh, created on, or they made their debut in comic strip form on October second of nineteen fifty and ran for half a century or almost half a century I guess because the uh, Charlie Brown and Peanuts um, comic strip ended in on February 13th of 2000 so almost 50 full years of a comic strip just going through the paces and going through the years and it really caught fire with a lot of um, a lot of kids even adults as well and that had a lot to do with the premise of the uh of the whole story. Now, the Peanuts gang are a group of kids that go through a lot of what 
people would probably say is kind of the Seinfeld of it all. Like, it's really about nothing, but at the same time, it's about everything. Um, the kids are, of course, the main focus of the comic strip and later of the TV specials and whatnot. Uh, adults are barely mentioned or focused on, as I kind of uh, noted earlier, a lot of times any. Anytime an adult will show up, it, they're always viewed from, like, the chest down, and all of their um, dialogue is just like, blah, 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 and I, I loved that. I, I think that's, it's such a novel concept at the time, and even now, it feels very, um, very unique in its approach to separating kind of our main characters, which were, you know, Charlie Brown and the gang and the adults that kind of not so much bookended, but were on, I would say the periphery of the stories. And what was interesting about this is that even though they focused on these characters who, you know, I would say probably ranged from like three to eight years old, um, the stories were actually very sophisticated. They dealt with a lot of uh, philosophical, psychological, and sociological humor. So uh, you would get these characters who had all of these weird quirks and had all of this nuance that you wouldn't normally see in something like this. And of course, no one had more nuance, no one had more quirks, no one had more character than our leads, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Charlie Brown is this kid who is just kind of on the losing streak of life most of the time. <laughs> he's uh he's constantly, you know, on the is constantly like the butt of the joke. He always is kind of down on his luck. You know, a lot of people um, gravitate towards Peter Parker as a superhero and as a comic book character because he's kind of always dealing with the Parker luck. He's always struggling. He's always very everyman. And that quality, I would say, at least for me, and a reason that I really gravitated towards Spider-Man as a kid was that it kind of felt uh, tangentially like this was a slightly grown-up version of the stuff that Charlie Brown would go through. He would get sad. He would, you know, deal with real problems that kids and even adults were facing. And when Charlie Brown and his gang kind of exploded in popularity uh, in the late 50s to early 60s, there was this really um, subtle push for bringing the comic strip to life through animation. Um, a lot of people wanted to make something out of this and kind of lift the characters and the stories off of the page. And to do that, we have to take a look at two very important names when it comes to Charlie Brown, A Charlie Brown Christmas, and everything that came uh uh, following the strip, because I think there are three names. When you think of Charlie Brown, there are three names that were instrumental to carrying the popularity of this character and of this franchise into the popularity that it's had for over a century now. And those three names are, of course, Charles M. Schultz as the creator of the characters and of the world, but also Lee Mendelssohn and Bill Melendez. Now, in the early 60s, uh, the there was a producer in Hollywood named Lee Mendelson who had produced various documentaries before uh, he decided to tackle this particular IP. And he wanted to create a documentary just kind of chronicling the uh, explosion of popularity that Charlie Brown and the Peanuts uh, went through in the past decade. 
And so he wanted to create a documentary about Charlie Brown and about Charles Schultz and really tell that story of how the this little comic strip that could became this, you know, nationwide sensation. And so uh, Mendelssohn, you know, made this whole entire documentary uh, and wanted to add, you know, maybe a minute or two of animation to kind of, you know, bring the characters to life during the documentary. And so he turned to an animator and a good friend of his named Bill Melendez. Now, the two had previously worked on a documentary, a baseball documentary, uh, called A Man Named Mays, which was all about this baseball player named Willie Mays, no relation to Bill Mays. Um, But... Melendez was initially really interested in making this documentary because of Charlie Brown's um, history with baseball. We all know, if you're familiar with the character, that baseball is a big part of uh, Charlie Brown's life and the fact that he is an awful pitcher. (laughs) Um, Melendez thought it would be ironic to go from making this documentary about Willie Mays, who is this, you know, icon in baseball at the time, to going to someone who is characteristically and historically an awful baseball player. So I just, I I think that's amazing. And the two of them worked together to put together this documentary. And for all accounts, you know, from all accounts that we've heard, um, the documentary was solid. They took the time, they really did their research, and unfortunately, as they tried to ship it out or, you know, really pitch it to networks, there was no network interest whatsoever. No one was interested in taking the story of Charlie Brown and his merry band into, you know, a uh, national television documentary. So Mendelssohn and Melendez basically had to let that... Uh, let that project die for a short period as the years went on. Well, a few years later, specifically in 1965, they got a second chance at bringing Charlie and Charlie Brown and his, uh, his friends into the limelight when the peanuts gang appeared on the cover of time magazine. Now I know that sounds really odd, uh, nowadays because of how media is kind of presented, but, this was huge at the time. It really spoke to the fact that for the past 15 years at that point, you know, Charlie Brown as a character and the Peanuts as a property really exploded in the public consciousness. And there were all kinds of, you know, different interested parties in really uh, wanting to make the Peanuts a little bit more mainstream. And so this brings us to our fourth name of importance in this story, which is John Allen. He was an he was an ad agent or an ad agent at the McCann Erickson agency, now just known as McCann. Um, if that name sounds familiar, Mad Men dealt with McCann Erickson a bunch. But uh, in 1965, John Allen called uh, uh, Bill Mendelssohn because he was interested in bringing Charlie Brown and his friends into animation and into a, um, basically interested in bringing them from the comic strip onto television. And even though uh, Bill Mendelssohn really was like, okay, I, or Lee Mendelssohn, sorry, um, was 
was basically like, this is this is great. I'm going to, you know, he believed that he was going to be selling his documentary finally. After, after, you know, almost five years, he was finally going to get the chance to tell that story. And so he kind of hastily agreed to making something for uh, for John Allen in time for uh in time for christmas and it was only later on that he found out oh no they want something completely different and in fact coca-cola wanted to sponsor a christmas special featuring the peanuts gang and as the story goes uh john allen after you know kind of sealing the deal with with mendelssohn basically said okay cool so uh the only catch is on this after, you know, he finally told him, like, it's going to be, you know, a half-hour animate, animated special that uh, is going to focus around the Christmas time. Uh, today is a Wednesday, and uh, network ex- executives are going to need a pitch by Monday. So they had five days to put together an outline for executives to kind of greenlight the project. So Mendelssohn uh, rounded up. Uh, Schultz to kind of help create this outline for the story. And within five days, they were back in business and back on track to making something that would end up being iconic for decades to come. So after getting Schultz on board, they were able to outline or do at least a basic outline for the Christmas special within the day. Within 24 hours, they already had something. And when they brought the pitch initially to the network executives on that following uh, Monday, they had four things that were... um, that were concrete, that they had, that were going to be implemented throughout the entire special. One, winter scenes that kind of showed off the uh, the season and all the things that were associated with it. Two, a school play of some sort, because these were kids during a time when, you know, school plays were uh, all over the place. Three, there was a scene to be read... Basically, there was a scene where a verse was going to be read directly from the Bible. And four, the soundtrack of the special was going to combine jazz and traditional Christmas music. And at this point, this hadn't been heard of. There was no real precedent set for all of all of these things or each of these things to be in uh, included in something on this scale, much less all four of these things. And so for uh, for probably about a week after making their big pitch, uh, Mendelssohn and Schultz were ghosted by John Allen, McCann Erickson and their sponsors. So they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was happening. So for a week, they basically had to sit in nervous um uh, nervous anticipation until they got word either way. And so finally, after days and days had passed, they found out that Coca-Cola had ordered the special for early December, which meant that at the time that they had um, gotten the green light to start development on this, they had six months to produce this thing. Now, that may seem like a long time, but uh, when it comes to production of any kind, six months is not a long time for anything. Like, anything. Especially, like, when you think about what was available to them at that point. It's 1965. They don't even have the kind of technology of today to be able to do the stuff that we could do. And it would still, you know, for modern filmmakers, it would still take 
much longer than six months to prepare something like this. So they had six months from green light to release date. And so they had to jump straight into production. And as they did, Charles Schultz's uh, main goal with this was to get down to the true meaning of Christmas. And that was kind of his directive from the get-go. And that was going to inform every decision that he made and every decision that the production made when it came to producing A Charlie Brown Christmas. Now, Schultz had some specific things that he really wanted to include and things that uh, shaped the way that the uh, that the special was... Um, was produced. First off, he took a lot of motifs from his childhood growing up in uh, Minnesota. Uh, the seasons changing, the stuff that you would see from like uh, architecture to setting to uh, the schools and the characters. He took all of that from Minnesota and his childhood, which really informed not just the special, but also the Peanuts gang as a whole. And they also had a very, what I, what has been, um, since described as a bare-bones script. They were really running off just kind of their outline because they didn't have time to go through, you know, six or seven drafts of the script. They had to get the stuff done and ready to uh, premiere on broadcast television within half a year. So during this, they were also able, they realized that they were going to be able to do something a little bit uh, out of the box, a little bit unconventional. They're going to buck tradition in some sense, uh, specifically certain things like religious themes at the time featuring something that carried heavy religious themes in the uh in a production much less a nationally broadcast uh program was kind of unheard of and there was a lot of backlash and a lot of pushback on having the climax of the uh of the special B, the scene where Linus goes and recites a verse from the Bible. And as, you know, there was a lot of um, unease about including this, uh, at one point it was, re you know, it's been reported that one of the uh, producers was asking, um, was asking Schultz, like, I don't know if we can do this. And he responded, apparently, if we don't do it, who will? And so they were going to include this, and he made it so that he essentially uh, made it un. Uh, he made he essentially made it impossible to edit out because you know with certain things like you know uh, nationally broadcast programs, like sometimes they'll do uh, you know a TV edit for certain things. My favorite is the Snakes on the Plane uh, TV edit, where it's like um, I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. Well, they couldn't do stuff like that with the, uh, with the Charlie Brown Christmas special, because not only is the scene where Linus, you know, recites a verse from the Bible at a very important point of the, uh, of the film, but it's also the, uh, emotional climax of the story where, if they tried to cut it out, the story wouldn't make any sense. So they were able to uh, really get that in, which, again, at the time was unheard of. They also wanted to initially implement a laugh track, which was kind of common of TV at that time, and they nixed it. Schultz nixed that right away. He said, no, there's going to be no laugh track. I don't want people being told when to laugh, which, again, was hugely um, divisive. 
at the time because, you know, again, this is this, you know, little program that might end up being, you know, just a drop in the bucket, you know, a flash, you know, a flash in the pan, you know, blip on history. And they're going to try and do all of these things that have never been done before. They also wanted to incorporate a sad tree as, and I'm using quotations, obviously. Um, they wanted to incorporate a Christmas tree that mirrored the spirit of Charlie Brown. And uh, the animation alone of that when, you know, typical uh, Christmas elements were, you know, the big Christmas tree, lots of carols, uh, were going to be very difficult to try and translate for an audience who, even though may have been, you know, somewhat familiar with Charlie Brown and the Peanuts may not know exactly why they go or why they went with these choices. Um, it was also this kind of uh, this guerrilla style uh, filmmaking bled into the animation. You know, Melendez, as you know, being brought back on to do the animation for this, had no idea if he was going to be able to animate everything in time. He didn't know if, you know, being able to animate, you know, half an hour's worth of animation was going to be doable in six months. You know, previously, as we talked about, he'd only done one to two minutes for that, uh, for that previous documentary. Nevertheless, he basically told them, yeah, I can do it. He lied straight out. He did what all of us do, you know, on resumes or when someone gives us a project and we have no idea if we're going to be able to do it or not. We lied through our teeth, and he did too. And he basically said, I can make this happen, and scrambled for the next six months to try and make that happen. Uh, during this point, he also uh, reached out to Hanna-Barbera, who was, of course, you know, this animation juggernaut at the time, to see if they could give any pointers, provide any support, and they ghosted him. They basically did not uh, give him any uh, help, any insight, and so Melendez and his team were on their own. Uh, the budget for the for the production was $76,000, which, um, again, might sound like a lot, but for something like this, especially at that time, was definitely not. And that being said, they also went $20,000 over their budget. Um, and something that I think is incredible is that when we're talking about the animation, uh, across the 30 minutes that the show uh, or that the special is, there are a total of 13,000 drawings. And I believe they said that the uh, it was basically like 12 frames a second, which, I mean, in today's day where it's like video games at, you know, 60 frames per second or 120 frames per second is like the norm, or at least it's starting to become the norm. That's crazy to me. Um, and in this animation with, you know, what they were trying to make and trying to slapdash together, you know, in the six months, they had to settle for very static characters. And this was intentional on Melendez's part. He said in an interview since that he wanted to make it so that the characters were very, um, very still and really replicated kind of the delivery style of the comic strip. The only exception to the rule would be Snoopy, who was meant to be very fluid and joyful and he would you know dance through frames so if you watch this you will see that there's a different um treatment for snoopy when it comes to animation than for the rest of the uh peanuts gang and speaking of the peanuts gang um 
this was a huge undertaking when it came to casting as well, because uh, Schultz and Mendelssohn really wanted to have an all-child cast. They were dead set on that. And so they embarked on trying to um, make that a reality. And they specifically wanted to get non-actors as, you know, much of the cast, with the exception of certain uh, actors like Charlie Brown's uh, voice actor. But they wanted to get that kind of childlike innocence when it came to the performances. Uh, when it came to some of the, t- you know, most important characters like Charlie Brown, they really wanted to, you know, because they're giving these characters their actual voices for the first time. This was a huge deal. So for Charlie Brown, they were really looking for someone who kind of accentuated blah. That was the word that they used when they're when they're trying to um, describe how his voice would be. And they ended up settling on Peter Robbins, who was kind of a uh, voice actor and an actor just in general on the rise at the time. Uh, For Lucy, they were very focused on trying to find someone who had a bold and forward voice, someone who was abrasive yet endearing. And they ended up casting a young Tracy Stratford. Uh, For Linus, they wanted someone who was sophisticated yet innocent and ended up uh, casting Peter Robbins' friend Chris Shea, specifically because they believed that his lisp was you know, gave the character an interesting quirk and an, and uh, really a window into how childlike these characters could be. For Snoopy, they decided to go on no voice, even though in the comic strip at the time, uh, Snoopy had dedicated um, thought bubbles and, you know, uh, speech bubbles. They decided they wanted to make him almost a Harpo Marx character who was all about physicality. And this really played into Melendez's ideas of making him this fluid character who kind of uh, drifted from one uh, scene to the next. And they ended up having Bill Melendez play the role of Snoopy, and anytime he did talk, it was sped up gibberish. It was all just this... So it's, again, something that they were taking into the new adaptation of... Uh, the character and of the property, and it was a huge gamble. Now, the one that I really kind of love is for Sally, who is Charlie Brown's uh, younger sister. Linus is, of course, Charlie Brown's best friend, and Sally is in love with Linus. I and Lucy is, of course, the uh, the rival to Charlie Brown, um, the one who always pulls the football from out from under him. So Sally was voiced by a very, very young Kathy Steinberg, who was only six years old at the time. The rest of the cast was between eight to ten. And Kathy Steinberg, they specifically had to, for her, have lines read to her because she couldn't read some of them. And uh, Peter Robbins, in interviews following in the following years, basically said that that happened a lot because there were certain words, certain lines that they had no idea what they were reading. And so the um, the adults, the casting director, um, the voice director, the booth director, all had to work with these kids on trying to um, trying to say these lines and make these very uh, sophisticated um make this very sophisticated dialogue something that they could work with. And the, I mean, just in general, you know, Peter Robbins, once again, in uh, in interviews has stated that the, 
uh, recordings. You know, the recording process was chaotic because you had all these kids, most of them non-actors, running around, you know, having to be wrangled. And it was a nightmare. It was chaos. But thankfully, they were able to kind of come together and make these kind of the iconic versions of these uh, of these voices. And the other big iconic piece of Charlie Brown that was established in this special was, of course, the music. Uh, we spoke before about how um, Mendelssohn and Schultz wanted to blend Christmas music and jazz. And so they turned to a, uh, a composer and his group who had done music for, once again, the Charlie Brown documentary, the Vince Guaraldi Trio. I have no idea if I said that correctly. And if I said it incorrectly, I apologize. But... Uh, the Vince Guaraldi Trio originally composed Linus and Lucy, which is the kind of the theme of Charlie Brown, uh, which is strange. They they uh, composed it for the documentary, and so that was kind of, that kind of became the Charlie Brown theme going forward. But their two biggest pieces of um, of co- of composing in this special were skating and Christmas time is here and. A quick note on Christmas Time is here. Apparently, Christmas Time is here, which is probably the most well-known Charlie Brown track besides the original uh, Peanuts theme. Uh, the lyrics for that were penned in around 15 minutes on the back of an envelope. I just I love how uh, rushed and thrown together this this whole production is because it really makes how all of the you know, accolades that it received following this kind of worth it and really uh, amazing in retrospect um, to get, you know, the recordings for Christmas time is here as well as uh, heart. The angels sing, which is sung a couple times during the special. Uh, they turn the Vince Guaraldi trio basically turned to St. Paul's Episcopal church children's choir. So once again, bringing in children to really breathe life into this project and, Eventually, the music from this became so well-renowned that the soundtrack for this special was added to the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2007 and was added to the Library of Congress's Culturally, Historically, or Aesthetically Important Wing in 2012. So, in retrospect, looking back on it, all of the stars aligned to make this something special. But at the time, no one knew that. No one was banking on this to succeed. So basically, uh, production wrapped about 10 days before it was to premiere on national television, which, again, is just it's crazy to me. So um, all involved at the point of uh, completing production believed that it was going to be a disaster. They thought this is trash. This is garbage. Uh, we are going to be doing a huge, huge disservice to not just the character, but to the creator and all the people who spent money on this. And indeed, when they showed the special to uh, the executives, the network executives, they were not happy. They basically completely just uh, trashed the uh, plot, the slow-moving plot, the music, the animation. Like, we paid you all this money for this. And they were, I guess, um, going to be bringing the uh, bringing this really 
well-renowned critic in at the time to view it and to kind of give it a review prior to it showing up on TV. And they were afraid. Like, they, they're on a record for saying, like, we didn't want to show it to him because, like, we thought this was going to be such a... Uh, such a garbage project that he is going to, you know, shit all over it, basically. But during this time, with all the doubts swirling, there they did have one supporter, and that was the critic from Time magazine. This critic named Richard Bergheim basically just lauded this thing. He believed in it. He said that this is going to be incredible. This is definitely worth the time to watch and so this gave them a little bit of hope as they watched it premiere on cbs on december 9th of 1965 and from there it's it was history you know the special was released to critical acclaim it became an instant classic and the following year 1966 it won an emmy for outstanding children's program and from that day since every single year the uh the program has been an annual broadcast on whether it's on cbs pbs whatever it has been in the public eye every single year since then and as we're looking at it right here the 55 year anniversary of this uh of this program, it's still going strong. Apple TV, I think, has it right now and is, you know, broadcasting it. So there will always be demand for this special. And I think that makes this program something really, um, for lack of a better term, you know, iconic in its, uh, in not just the uh, story, but also the way it came to be, the the production that was put in place to complete this. I mean, following this, this was the first time that the Peanuts gang was be- was being taken from the comic strip to you know animation, and from there you would see dozens upon dozens of Christmas specials, of holiday specials, of regular specials, you know, the Snoopy's Family Reunion, that was my, you know, intro into the character and into the world, um, all the way up to the Peanuts movie that came out a few years back, which I love and adore. Charlie Brown and the Peanuts Gang have been a staple, and it all really hinged upon and all really started with a Charlie Brown Christmas. And we haven't even gotten into the plot of the special, which I think is so iconic and is so, um, it really speaks to me, especially this year. Like, it's crazy. So essentially, A Charlie Brown Christmas is really about Charlie Brown and seasonal depression, essentially. Uh, it starts off with him basically telling Linus, you know, I don't know why I don't feel more Christmassy. I don't know why I don't feel more happy how I'm supposed to feel around this Christmas time. Um, and it really, at least, you know, rewatching it this year really made me, you know, it, it hit a, it hit different because I think it's safe to say that a lot of us, you know, a lot of people, even though, you know, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, um, this year sucks. Uh, it's really hard to be excited about Christmas. It's really hard to be excited about anything when all of this terrible stuff has been going on with this terrible year that is 2020. And with, uh, with along, 
So alongside Charlie Brown kind of doubting, like, what is Christmas about? Why am I, you know, feeling this way about Christmas? He's also starting to notice things. And, you know, when you're a kid, you really kind of look at Christmas as like, oh, it's the holiday where I get a bunch of presents or it's the holiday where we, you know, put up a tree and Santa comes. But as you start to get older, you start to notice stuff. You start to notice stuff like commercialism, how how much uh, Christmas is kind of dominated by commercialism. You know, you got to buy this. You know, this is the perfect time. You know, I was just talking to, um, I'm back in uh, Tucson, you know, talking to, uh, you know, visiting family for Christmas. And I was talking to uh, my dad, basically telling him, you know, a lot of uh, commercial copy because I'm a voice actor uh, is really, you know, like this year is, you know, this year's been terrible, so now's the time to buy a new Kia Sorento. Like, it's it's crazy how much people are still trying to, you know, push forward commercialism even at the most terrible times. And Charlie Brown is starting to notice this stuff. He's starting to notice that, like, Christmas doesn't feel as special as it used to. It doesn't feel like people are celebrating coming together as much as what the holiday means for them uh when it comes to like material possessions, you know, he talks to Lucy, who's basically like, you know, she wants real estate. Snoopy has all of these, you know, he's basically decorating his dog house. Sally is asking for a bunch of stuff and he finds himself like struggling with this idea of what he thinks Christmas is and what it feels like it is right now. You know, Christmas is about togetherness. It's about spending time with your loved ones. It's about really just being um being happy and he doesn't feel happy and i think you know in a year like this it's very easy to kind of feel that way um he's directed to try and you know participate in the school play the the annual christmas play and when you know Charlie Brown goes to rehearsal. He's basically seeing all of this stuff, you know, people celebrating there's all this really fun music but the cast is, you know, really mean and he find he figures out like I I want to make this feel more like Christmas and less like this weirdly commercialized um you know, this weirdly commercialized uh media plot and so he's like maybe we need a Christmas tree. And Lucy, who is the Christmas queen in this play, wants this, you know, big old like aluminum Christmas tree. And so she sends him and Linus to go get one. And when they get to the lot, Charlie Brown doesn't want these, you know, fancy fake trees. He wants a real Christmas tree. He wants something that really feels like Christmas. And so he picks the only actual tree in the entire lot, which is this little sapling you know, everyone, you know, you look at it and nowadays it's kind of part of the uh, part of the common lexicon where it's just like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Like it's this sad little thing. And, you know, even the Linus is like, oh, I don't I don't know about this, man. Like they're they're going to say something. Charlie Brown's like, no, like this is what Christmas is about. Getting a real tree and, you know, putting decorations on it. It's going to be perfect. And when they get back, oh my god, the entire cast roasts Charlie Brown for his tree choice. And, you know, after this, like, it feels like he's hit rock bottom. He's, like... He, he like shouts out of the air. He's like, doesn't anybody know like what Christmas is about? Like he doesn't anyone know what's going on? 
you know, and this is when, you know, Linus takes the stage. We get that big spotlight on him and Linus recites the Annunciation to the Shepherds. It's this Bible verse kind of, you know, which is which I think ever since has been uh, really closely associated with the um, with the idea of Christmas. And when and it's more or less basically talking about, you know, the idea that gifts don't make Christmas or gifts don't make things special. And, after, you know, following this, Charlie Brown gets, you know, invigorated. So he basically takes the tree. He's like, I'm not going to let commercialism like run, run Christmas into the ground for me. So he takes the tree home to decorate it. And he is, um, he's like, I'm going to show them, I'm going to decorate this. We're going to get this, you know, looking as Christmassy as possible. And he, on his way home, swings by Snoopy's doghouse, And he takes one of the, you know, a big red Christmas ornament and he puts it on the tree. And because the tree is, or the ornament is so large and the tree is so small, the tree basically bends over. The sapling bends over to the ground, and Charlie Brown thinks, oh my god, I just killed this tree. It's like, everything I touch dies. Like, it's, you know, it's honestly, it's a point that a lot of people have felt this year. It's a point that I felt this year. You know, I talked, I got very emotional last week talking about, um, the uh, the trials and tribulations that everyone's been through this year and how uh, my own stuff is really, uh, really kind of shaped how I'm going to look back on this time. And everybody's been at that rock bottom point where they feel like nothing is going right. They don't feel like um, they know what Christmas is about. They feel like the holiday's hollow. And, you know, why do we even, you know, continue to celebrate this? And so Charlie Brown, like, leaves. And after this, this is the point when um, everything kind of turns around because the kids, the other, you know, the cast and the other kids in Charlie Brown's neighborhood realize that they were, they were kind of harsh. They were really mean to Charlie Brown. And they kind of um, decide that together they are going to make Christmas better for him. You know, Linus kind of picks up the drooping tree and wraps his blanket around the base to give it, you know, to give it some some much needed TLC. And the kids start, you know, showing up one by one with more decorations, more decorations from the doghouse. You know, even even Lucy, you know, shows up because she knows that, you know, Charlie Brown is having a really hard time. And he is the only thing that he wanted was to um, was to have Christmas. And I think the kids realize that they've kind of forgotten what Christmas is about. They've forgotten that Christmas isn't about, you know, what you can buy or what you can, you know, gift to people. It's about making people feel loved. And, you know, the kids start humming uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, Charlie Brown kind of shows back up. You know, he hears them starting to sing and he kind of shows back up and we see that somehow, miraculously, the sapling has grown into this large Christmas tree. It All it needed was the love and affection of the kids. It, all they needed was for, you know, the greater group to believe in Christmas again. And all the kids, you know, are there to greet him. They shout, you know, the Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. And they continue to sing, Hark the Herald Angels sing. And Charlie Brown finally feels like he's a part of something. And he feels like he's not suffering alone anymore. 
And um, this is kind of the point where I'm going to like make a quick pivot to um, just say that seasonal depression is a real thing. I kind of, I've talked about it. I, I'm pretty sure I talked about it last week. But um, there are a lot of people who don't like Christmas. There are a lot of people who around this time get very sad. And in a year like this, like that's completely acceptable. In fact, it's probably common. Uh, more common than it has been, I'm sure, in years. But um, for the people who feel that way, I just I want them to know they're not alone. I want them to know that there are people that love them. I want them, you to know that um, I believe in you, I support you, and I want you to have a Merry Christmas. So, um, yeah, and that's kind of the message of this special and of this program. And really, I mean, of this whole thing, you know, coming together to pull this, you know, little uh, program that could into something that was, you know, this huge long shot and a big gamble for Schultz, for Mendelssohn, for Melendez, and really watching it turn into the gigantic Christmas tradition that it is today, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's this, um, and it really uh, speaks to the kind of the theme of the special itself, which is really that uh, Christmas is about making other people feel loved. Christmas is about coming together and showing love to your fellow man, your fellow woman, your fellow non-binary. Like, you are loved. And if you don't feel that way, you know, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that, you know, if you're not having a good Christmas, I'm here for you. I'm I'm in your corner. So, um, yeah, that's really what the story's about. You know, if people hadn't come together to make this happen if they hadn't you know taken a risk if Mendelssohn or Melendez or John Allen from the agency hadn't believed in this project we wouldn't have something like the Charlie Brown Christmas special we wouldn't have the popularity of the Peanuts gang today and I think that's kind of beautiful that's kind of incredible and honestly, you know, this idea of people coming together to make something greater than the sum of its parts and to make something that speaks to people, that really, that lifts them up and shows them that they can be loved, that's what Christmas is all about. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And uh, this is the last weekly review of 2020. It's um, it's pretty incredible. Uh, we made it. We're almost there. One week to go. And we'll be home free. We'll be in 2021. But right now we are reviewing episode 8 of The Mandalorian Season 2 entitled Chapter 16 the rescue and it's time it's finale time uh this was one of the best episodes of the season i loved almost everything about this this episode and really it was a culmination of everything that had come before it both the first season as well as the second season 
And uh, this was basically the raid. This was the heist. This this episode was was the raid um, <laughs> or the siege or whatever you want to call it. Um, but basically this, you know, the first half of the episode was really about kind of building the crew, pulling the crew together. Uh, Bill Burr got the uh, coordinates for them to go find uh, Grogu and uh, Moff Gideon. And so uh, most of the first half of this episode is kind of getting the people together who are going to help them out, which means they go back and they recruit Bo-Katan and her her buddy, Sasha Banks. I don't know her character's name. I'm sorry. Um but it was it was really cool seeing, you know, them in the same room as Boba Fett and them being like, he's not a Mandalorian. It's just cool. I love all of the nuance and all of the new stuff that they've introduced into kind of the Mandalorian mythos with this show. You know, this idea of like foundlings and religious zealots and like just all of this stuff that was built upon the foundation that was set up in not just the original trilogy, but shows like Clone Wars and Rebels. So so I really enjoyed that. Um, that kind of brings us to the actual raid, the siege, the whatever you want to call it, the rescue mission. Uh, first off, Ace flying by Boba Fett. Like, oh my God. Like, this is the kind of stuff that we were used to in, like, Empire Strikes Back. Um, even with the Django stuff in Episode 2. Like, I really dug this. And their whole plan was kind of contingent upon... Um, the main group moving in and just kicking ass and taking names while Mando snuck down into the, um, into the lower levels to not just, uh, rescue Grogu, but also to deal with the looming dark troopers that were ready to just pounce. And I really, really dug the, uh, the fight sequence between Mando and the one dark trooper. Uh, I love the, uh, the Terminator influences. There was a bunch of Terminator influences with these dark troopers, uh, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was a good touch and made them feel different and distinct from other kind of variations of stormtroopers that we've gotten in the past. Um, also, you know, just the just the scene where like the dark troopers like punching into Mando's face. I was like, I was cringing because even though like yeah, the Beskar is protecting him for the most part. It's not going to, you know, protect from the impact onto his face. So, I mean, I will say later on when he pulls the helmet off, I expected his face to be a lot worse looking. But I just, I I loved the usage of this one dark trooper that he was able to eventually defeat using the Beskar spear. And that whole sequence was well shot. The entire episode was so well shot. I just, I, I enjoyed it. Um... But alongside that, while Mando's dealing with this, we were dealing with legit girl power up on top. You know, we had um, Sasha Banks, we had Bo-Katan, we had Cardoon, and we also had um, Fennec. You know, th- these three or these four like ladies just absolutely wrecking shop, going up against stormtroopers, going up against imperial officers, just so freaking cool. Taking the bridge, and you saw, you know. Uh, getting into that, that Bo-Katan was like, I have to beat him. I have to defeat him. He's mine. No one else gets to him. And even though I was someone who had watched Rebels and had watched the Clone Wars, and I, you know, remember that, yeah, you have, you know, this is a very specific reason why she needs to defeat him. Um, it, it, it escaped me at the time. So I was like, why? Oh, that's weird. And which brings us to the pivotal scene where 
Mando shows up to Grogu's cell and Moff Gideon's there. And the two of them, you know, have this banter. He basically tells him, you know, he, he bluffs him and he fakes him out where he's like, I see the uh, the relationship you have. You can leave as long as you leave me and the ship alone. And Mando's like, all right, cool. So he goes and grabs Grogu and uh, Moff Gideon tries to kill him with a darksaber. So we got a cool duel between uh, Moff, Moff and Mando. Um so I and it kind of brought me back because I remember, you know, Pedro Pascal uh, played. Um, oh, he was uh, Oberon in Game of Thrones where you saw him with a spear and it made so much sense. You could see like this. That had to be Pedro Pascal doing those spear stunts because he knew he knows how to do them. So I was really impressed by that. I thought that was super cool. And him defeating Moff Gideon. At that point, I was like, oh, right. You have the only way you can take the Darksaber is by defeating someone else for it. Oh, this is going to be a problem. And so when they get back to the bridge, you know, they basically tell everyone so. And so it immediately, you know, puts everyone in a weird position. Because now, if Bo-Katan wants to rule Mandalore and get the Darksaber back, she has to defeat Mando. And even though he tries to, like, pawn it off to her, be like, here, I don't want it. Like, I yield. Whatever. They recognize that, no, that's not how this works. You know that's not how this works. And there is more stuff coming. Speaking of more stuff coming, the Dark Troopers come back because they're not organic beings. They're droids. Which feeds back into the narrative of Season 1, where Mando was like, no, I hate droids, hate droids, because of what they did. So I dug that as well. Um, but getting to see all these things show up and all of all of our main characters are like, oh, we're uh, we're done. Like these things are going to break in and we are going to be completely just absolutely wrecked and destroyed. And they're like looming in. They're punching their way into this door. And all of a sudden, you know, in the back, we see this one X-Wing kind of fly by. And... Maybe I'm dumb, but I didn't know what it was. I was like, okay, there's an X-Wing. What's going to happen? And the X-Wing, you know, docks in. We see the cockpit open and someone hooded gets out. And I still wasn't connecting the dots. I was like, oh, it's maybe it's Ahsoka. Maybe it's, you know, what what's going to happen here? And then you see it. You see the lightsaber ignite. You see, you know, in the footage they're cutting down. And I'm still like, no, they wouldn't do that. No, there's no way. And it was like slowly building the anticipation. It was masterfully done. And then finally, when you get that first shot in the uh, in the kind of storage area, you see the gloved hand with the hilt, the lightsaber, the green blade. I was like, no, there's no freaking way. And Luke motherfucking Skywalker is just wrecking shop on all of these droids on all these dark troopers. And I was just amazed. I was in love and they were just one after the other, just absolutely going through just absolutely just wrecking all these things. And he makes it up the elevator into the bridge. And I was like, Oh man, this is so cool. And then he put pulls the hood down and I'm like, ah, Oh, because the CGI for this, the de-aging CGI they used for this was not great. Um, I mean, it could have been, it could have been worse, could have absolutely been worse, but, um, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, I think it's absolutely cool that they got Mark Hamill back to do it, but for me, I just, 
you know, and I'm sure I'm, I'm no, I'm not the only person who stated this. Like, just get Sebastian Stan. Disney, you've already got him. Like, just bring him in. They've talked about it before. Like, what was what was the harm in doing that? But either way, I mean, it was cool seeing Luke uh, there. We get all the feels when Grogu is, he's basically like reaching towards him and Mando's like, he doesn't want to go with you. And Luke's like, he's he's waiting for your permission to go with me. And so we get this heartfelt goodbye between Mando and Grogu where Mando actually takes his helmet off to show Grogu his face because he's never seen it. He's never seen his face this whole time. And, um, oh, I was... I was, tears were flowing because this is what we've been building to, you know, since the very first episode, he's been trying to get him to his kind and he finally did. And that goodbye was incredibly sad. And so, um, that's really where it ended and it's very open-ended now. We've still got all the Mandalore stuff, but, um, at the, uh, at the outset, at the end of the credits, we got a nice, cute, quick little scene where back on Tatooine, we go back all the way to a huge throwback, which is uh, Jabba the Hutt's palace. And his little, like, translator guy has, I guess, assumed the the Hutt uh, title because he is, like, fat and he's, like, sitting in the chair like, ah, yeah. And uh, Fennec and Boba Fett show up and they waste everybody in that room. <laughs> and essentially Boba Fett sits down in the seat and he, I guess, is now declaring himself the uh, the mob boss of Tatooine. And we get this teaser for the book of Boba Fett, which at the time I didn't know, like, is this where the show is going now? No, season three is going to be about Boba Fett. But no, it looks like that we're going to be getting an actual Boba Fett show on the side alongside um, The Mandalorian and all the other Star Wars shows that we're getting. So overall, man, this was a great season. I really dug it. This episode was a fantastic finale, and I am just so excited about Star Wars. And it's been a while since I've been excited about Star Wars. So I want to thank The Mandalorian, John Favreau, Peyton Reed, who directed this episode. Like, what? Um Pedro Pascal, everyone involved with this, you did an incredible job because I know they listen to this podcast, right? Uh, you did an incredible job, and I can't wait to see what the future holds for not just uh, The Mandalorian, but Star Wars as a franchise. So uh, that wraps up the weekly review for 2020. Uh, we'll be debuting a brand new weekly review in January. Tune in uh, next week for our year-end episode to find out what that will be. And uh, for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we've got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, it was simple. I talked about it already. Nightwing number 77. Um, it's Nightwing and Christmas. What do you want from me? Uh, I loved it. I really, really, really dug it. It was a great send-off for the uh, Jurgens era of Nightwing. You know, he did the best he could, but uh, I gotta say, I know I, you know, we're taking a break from the news segments, but I am really stoked about Nightwing next year, guys. I, I just, Tom Taylor, you know how much I love Tom Taylor. Uh, Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo, them bringing their 
incredible partnership to Nightwing. Um, I can't wait. And I think this was a great send-off for the previous era, the Rebirth era of Nightwing. And where we go next, nobody knows. Except, I guess, for uh, for Tom Taylor and Bruno Renato. But I uh, really enjoyed that book. But that was last week. Let's talk about this week's books. we got five books for you this week, right before Christmas time. So let's go ahead and just dive right into it. First off, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, The Secret Origin Number 1. This is written by Scott Snyder, Jeff Johns, uh, with art by Ryan Benjamin. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know... The last uh, Dark Knight's Death Metal tie-in was really good, so I'm hoping that this one lives up to it. I mean, it's 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 Superboy Prime against Darkest Night, so we'll see. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Secret Origin. The DCU's darkest secrets are explored while two titans clash. The heroes search for a way to defeat the Darkest Knight through the universe's past, while Superboy Prime faces down the demonic Batman. So I'm excited. I I re- I love Superboy Prime as a character. He's dumb, and he's just probably just like in continuity, like the worst character. But I really dig him for some reason. He's a guilty pleasure of mine. So I'm excited to pick this up. Next up, we have U.S. Agent number t- or U.S. Agent number two. This is written by Christopher Priest with art by Georges Gentil. I know I said that wrong, and I apologize. But uh, I was I was surprised. I was surprisingly impressed. I was uh, really put off by how much I enjoyed the first U.S. Agent uh, issue, and I you know. U.S. Agent John Walker has never been a favorite of mine when it comes to, you know, Captain America's greater uh, supporting cast. But I dug this. I kind of wish that Marco Cicchetto was doing the art like he is on the covers. But um, but I'm really digging this. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. American Zealot Chapter 2 Homeland. The former U.S. agent's routine mission becomes complicated by revelations from his past while an enigmatic new threat moves to intercept him. So yeah, just real simple. This is, you know, a classic U.S. agent-style story, uh, which is essentially Punisher meets Captain America. But um, I'm liking it. I'm really enjoying it so far. So I, I think you should give it a look. Next up, we have Batman Superman number 15. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Andre Brisson. And I, you know, I, I'd still dig it. I still really like this. Um, I'm really excited about the new uh, team coming into Batman Superman uh, next year. That's uh, Gene Lun Yang and Ivan Race. Really excited about that. But uh, this, I'm assuming, kind of closes out the initial Batman Superman with uh, the Williamson era. And this guy, he's so good. And I've been really loving the Batman Superman book ever since the first issue. So I can't wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Solomon Grundy died on a Sunday. But when this monster man kicks the bucket, all hell breaks loose. When the body of Grundy begins to break down, so begins a toxic time bomb that could wipe out half of North America. It's up to the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight to get Grundy from Star Labs to Slaughter Swamp before the clock hits zero. But with a horde of supervillains all looking to snag the sizzling super titan for their own nefarious ends, our heroes had better move quickly. So yeah, uh, good stuff. I'm, 
man, I just, I really dig this. I really dig this stuff. So I, uh, I love, this is just a classic, like silver age style story. And, uh, they're doing the Lord's work here with Batman Superman. Next up, we have King in black. Number two, this is written by Donnie Cates with art by Ryan Stegman. Um, I talked about Kingdom Black. First issue was uh, pleasantly surprising about how crazy it was. Uh, so I would say if you are into this kind of stuff, if you're into the current Venom, um, definitely give this a look for sure. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Chapter 2, Fall. Hail to the King. So yeah, really, uh, <laughs> really descriptive. But spoilers for last issue, they null ripped the century in half and consumed him. Like I don't know how how much crazier this gets. Uh, just really good stuff all around. I really dig it. It's a fantastic. Um, just kind of turning everything on its head. Uh, I I enjoy it. So I like crazy stuff like this from time to time. And this is, uh, if you're like a fan of Venom, if you're a fan of these kind of stories, it's going to be right up your alley. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up is Batman White Knight Presents Harley Quinn number three. This is written by Katana Collins with art by Matteo Scalera. Um, the story's great. The first two issues have been fantastic, and the last issue introduced us to the Grey Ghost. I love the Grey Ghost, and I'm so excited to see him being utilized in the story. Um, it's just fantastic. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Book three. Harley and the GTO seize an opportunity to investigate the Starlet's failed murder attempt. When the survivor offers a startling revelation about Agent Hector Quimby, the team acts quickly on the intel and a handful of colorful clues to interrogate an inconvenient new suspect. Harley's fears are realized when she makes a chilling discovery that reminds her of the Joker's worst obsessive behaviors, a development that casts light on new suspicions and conflicts of interest and threatens to compromise the whole case. So yeah, I I really dig this story. I love the way it's being presented. Um, and honestly, this is a great little uh, side story between whatever, you know, between Curse of the White Knight and whatever White Knight Volume 3 is going to be. I, I just, I think it's a must read, especially if you've been enjoying the White Knight stuff. So that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, Secret Origin number one, U.S. Agent number two, Batman Superman number 15, King in Black number 2, and Batman White Knight Presents Harley Quinn number 3. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us here on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. really helps me out, really helps the podcast out basically raises our stock in the podcasting space and kind of gets us out into the uh, into the orbit of listeners just like you. Also, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's at Pod. if you want to keep up to date on all the happenings with the podcast. I put up uh, polls. We talk about uh, different things when it comes to the uh, the main courses of each uh, of each episode. I'll talk about some comic book news. Uh, I was really I was really on fire this past week. If you were tuning into the the Twitter feed for the podcast, just talking about all the news that was going on. Um, 
Um, I'm going to do probably like a big roundup of news uh, first week of January. So uh, that'll be a good time. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to kind of catch up on everything. But yeah, you can also... Um, if you so choose, if you feel so inclined, you can give us a review. A uh, five-star rating and review really helps me out, really helps out the podcast. Once again, just kind of uh, gets the word out there. We are a podcast by a geek for geeks, so I love getting feedback from you guys. I love getting to have conversations with you and kind of raising the stock of the podcast is important to me. I, you know, we are going to be coming up on our three year anniversary in April and I am really freaking excited to uh, continue on and grow the podcast. We've got some big things in store for next year that I can't wait to share with you, but if you do, give us a five-star rating and review uh, on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I will read your review right here on the podcast. You can join the likes of Seafire, ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, and our newest reviewer. Uh, this comes courtesy of Burrito Man 88 love the name, uh, from uh, Apple Podcasts, and it reads, In a word, amazing. When I tune in each week, I know that all will be well. Host Eric Azana expertly discusses a topic that's close to his heart, rounds up the news stories he's excited to share, reviewing the current hot show and recommending listeners comics to pick up. The main course of the episode can range from comics to video games and everything in between with an occasional guest for giant-sized or special episodes. Even if even if I'm not familiar with the comics, since Eric and his guests are passionate about it. These alone would make for any good podcast, but what truly makes Geek Explained exceptional and my favorite podcast is that Eric isn't afraid to share his emotions with listeners. He's an open book and it makes him able to connect with listeners all the better for it. Even when he shares his vulnerability, his positivity shines. Eric is an absolute force for good in this community and someone who... Um, Oh, sorry. Uh, someone we could all stand to emulate even just a little bit. I cannot recommend this podcast enough or put into words how much this show means to me. Um, wow. Uh, Burrito Man 88, whoever you are, thank you so much for the review. That is, um, that's as glowing a review as you can ask for. You know, it's it's been a tough year with a lot of stuff going on. So um, the fact that I'm able to uh, utilize this show, utilize this podcast to bring any bit of positivity in a year like this, um, it, it means a lot to me. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for submitting your review. And if you want to submit your five-star review, I will read whatever you want me to read on here. As long as you give me that five-star review, you can write whatever you want. So uh, once again, thank you to Burrito Man 88 um, Just, wow, that is, that is huge. That really, uh, thank you so much. That means the world. So... Um, yeah, so feel free, like I said, to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little, oh, I'm a little emotional this week. Uh, so um, yeah, it's it's always good to get feedback from you guys. I love talking to you guys. That's the whole reason I started the podcast was to really just have conversations and talk about the stuff that I am passionate about, the stuff that you know, kind of really gets my gets my goose, gets me going. So uh, you can also, if you would like to send in uh, questions, you want to get my opinion or you want to, you know, get a quick pitch or uh, just my thoughts, you know, unfiltered, unscripted, whatever, uh, you can send uh, 
emails to geeksplain at gmail.com to be part of the Geeksplain mailbag. Just put Geeksplain mailbag or just mailbag in the subject line and I will read it out on here. We do have an email from our good friend Aaron Arancha, good brother who has uh, sent emails before talking about uh, Batman Beyond specifically and this email is no different. I love I love talking to Aaron about this stuff. I'm really, I appreciate the dedication to Batman Beyond. I've always held that really close to my heart and it's good to know that someone also feels that way about this property. So, Aaron's letter reads as thus. Hey, Eric, it's me again with another discussion topic. Sadly, <laughs> it's about Batman Beyond again. It's never sad. Batman Beyond's awesome. Uh, anyhow, yeah, I was wondering if you had read up on any of the Batman Beyond comics. I myself have not. I really enjoyed the series, but I don't know something about the comics. I don't know. Something about the comics kind of puts me off. More like I'm afraid it's going to not be very good and ruin it for me kind of weird i know not weird at all i i know exactly what you're talking about but i also have no idea where to even start anyways if you have read some of them i would really appreciate your thoughts on the comics and i'm curious to see whether you enjoy them or not uh he he also talks about uh thanks again for the podcast man it's definitely a highlight of my week mine too uh i really enjoy the daredevil discussion with matt draper uh you guys definitely know your stuff and hearing two people talk about something they enjoy with such passion is super entertaining thanks again man and take care aaron thank you so much for uh for sending that email in again i love your passion for batman beyond and it it matches and might even exceed mine so i am impressed by that uh so when it comes to uh batman beyond comics you are not um uh you're not foolish for being a little hesitant to dive into them because batman beyond comics are is basically a mixed bag it's a story of hits and misses um i do have some recommendations if you are interested to uh on a couple uh runs that i would definitely recommend if you are looking for kind of the same exact stories or the same exact kind of stories that you would get in the uh, batman beyond series the batman beyond mini series from uh, 1999 as well as the ongoing that preceded or uh, that followed it i believe it's 24 issues um those are great those are essentially just continuations of the show and you can kind of treat them as like lost episodes the all the characterizations there it's very 90s just like batman beyond was so so be prepared for that but it's definitely worth um worth checking out also if you're looking for something a little bit more recent uh batman beyond 2.0 uh it was originally digital and then was released in print as Batman Beyond Universe. I would definitely recommend. This is during the New 52 time, but again, is off in its own world. It's doing its own thing. It still kind of carries a lot of the um, Batman Beyond uh, DCAU DNA from it. Tell some great stories. I believe that is uh, 24 issues as well. Or it, it might be... No, no, I'm remembering that wrong. I'm going to look this up real quick. Uh, no, it's 40 issues. So big, long run. If you're looking for something to uh, kind of wet your whistle when it comes to Batman Beyond. And I think all of this stuff can be found on DC Universe, the uh, the now just a comic app. Uh, I'm not endorsed by DC Universe, but I could totally be endorsed by DC Universe. Um, but I think that, that would be the way to go. That would be kind of the place to go to... Uh, to follow up on this stuff it is the library there is insane but uh definitely like i said the uh 99 miniseries it's like six issues um the uh following series which is 24 issues and then batman beyond 2.0 slash batman beyond universe which is a big old 40 issue run definitely definitely check out if you're looking for something uh even more recent 
Future's End is the way... No, no, I am... I'm not saying it. Future's End is garbage, and you need to skip it. Batman Beyond appeared in there, but it... Don't read that. Don't read it. You may have heard before, oh yeah, Batman Beyond makes his first canon appearance in the DCU, you know, in Future's End. Don't. It's a lie. Don't. Just don't. Skip it. If you want to read modern Batman Beyond comics, Batman Beyond Rebirth. Start there. It's like... It's uh, it's over 30 issues at this point. It's a fantastic story. It does... Um, it does... Uh, kind of separate itself from the DCAU continuity. So if you're looking to stick strictly in that kind of world, then I would probably stick with um, the original series as well as uh, Batman Beyond Universe. But if, if you want something that kind of blends the two, blends like the DCAU with current comic stuff, Batman Beyond Rebirth is awesome. It's really, really good. They always bring in, I believe uh, Dan Jurgens is still running the show over there. But uh, the artists they bring in for that is are insane, and the way that they incorporate characters that um, that we haven't seen in the DCAU before, they incorporate uh, Nightwing, they incorporate Damian Wayne. Like these are characters that show up in this continuity, and you find out, oh, what happened to them? It is, it is great. It's it's a great series. And I believe that's also on DC Universe. So if you are looking to read some really good Batman Beyond comics, those are the ones I should re- I would recommend. Uh, there's also if you want to do some kind of like uh, some additional reading uh, alongside Batman Beyond Universe, they also had uh, Justice League 2.0, which I believe is now Justice League Universe. I don't know. Or Justice League Beyond. Um, that's a that's a good book, too. It's set in the same world as the Batman Beyond 2.0 uh, dealing with the Justice League Beyond. So if you liked those characters in the episode, um, The Call, I would definitely check that out as well. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Batman Beyond comics. Like I said, few and far between. There are some between there in the 2000s. They tried more than once to make a good Batman Beyond series to varying degrees of success. And then just the the Future's End slash uh, post-Future's End stuff with Tim Drake as Batman Beyond. It's just not worth it. It's it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Don't put yourself through that. Uh, you can dive right into, if you want to read something that's current right now, like you can dive right into the uh, Batman Beyond Rebirth special and then go into Rebirth number one all the way to today, and you will be able to get everything that you need to know. They will reference stuff here and there that's also kind of going on in the mainline DC universe at, like, right now. But beyond that, it's still... Ah, beyond... Ah, I didn't mean to do that. But um, it's definitely worth a check, for sure, if you're a fan of that character and of that universe. So... Uh, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Aaron for writing in as part of our Geeksplain mailbag and to uh, BurritoMan88 for the amazing review that I'm still kind of emotional about. Um, so uh, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Next week, we are going to finish off the year of 2020 with our Geeksplained year in review for 2020, uh, talking about my top five uh, of a bunch of stuff, games, film, TV, comics. The comics one is the most difficult, and, I, and I'm still, as I'm recording this, I'm still working on it, and I'm, and I'm, I'm kicking myself right now. It's hard. But uh, next week, tune in for that, for our final episode of the year, the Odyssey. That was 2020. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.